1: Very early Saturday morning, Senators, Republican senators, passed an overhaul of the tax bill that may be the most sweeping legislation that we have seen in decades. Here to talk about what the economic implications are is Sri Kumar, president and founder of Sri Kumar Global Strategies. He is also a Bloomberg prophet and is based in Santa Monica, California, but he joins us here in our Colder than Santa Monica, but lovely. Eleven three zero studios three. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with. Me, Lisa. I want to start with all of these stories and analyses that we're reading about the implications of this tax plan. Has anyone read it?
2: I doubt it. When you consider that in the last couple of hours, as they were negotiating and talking, Lisa, the more most important thing was. As a Republican, they all had to go ahead and vote for this bill because they wanted a legislative victory before the end of the calendar year. So they got it. And I think that you hear that parts of it were handwritten, and you have seen that on TV saying that they didn't even have time to to type it. All of this leads me to believe that people voted for a tax bill they had not fully read.
3: All right.
1: That said, is there a way to assess in a preliminary fashion what the implications are based on sort of bare-bones assumptions of uh, what is
2: in the bill? Bare-bones assumption, and again, as you well know, there is a difference between the Senate approach and the House approach, which needs to be reconciled. But that being set aside, it doesn't look like it is going to have much of an economic impact at all in terms of stimulus, I'm not one who believes that just because you have a tax cut of some kind, it is automatically stimulative. It depends on what the tax cuts are, what it is oriented toward. For example, you need employment tax credit to hire, to give stimulus to hiring. On the other hand, you cannot do things which are which appear to be done to meet some few powerful interest groups, and that's not the way you're going to get the benefit out of this.
0: Shri, uh, let's talk about an interest group that we're fond of, investors. What investments do you believe will prosper as a result of the bill as you know it, and what investments would you stay away from?
2: I think clearly overall, Pim, you're seeing that uh, the risk on investments are benefiting today, and you are taking more of a risk. I think the market is assuming that in addition to the Yellen put and the Bernanke put that they have had in the past, They are going to have some form of a Trump put as well from the fiscal side. And so they are going to have more of speculation building up. So how it ends, it's hard to say and when it will end. But I think overall, all kinds of risk on strategies are going to benefit for a while from both monetary and fiscal policy suggesting that they are concerned about the stock market. The president himself has said several times that the stock market going up is a sign of the success of his policies. So he's going to do everything he can to keep pushing up the equities as well.
1: So do you agree, Sri, about the uh, consensus bet that seems to be uh, coming together about no recession until late 2019, early 2020? Do you agree with that?
2: I have actually pulled forward my expectation for a recession, Lisa. I used to be thinking That you had a late 2019, but I wouldn't be surprised to pull it forward by close to a year to late 2018 or early 2019. Where am I getting my information from? Just to be clear that a recession would start. The recession start date. And here is where I would mention that. The two to ten year treasury spread is a very important indicator to me. And look at what has happened today with all the euphoria in the equity market. The bond market has hardly budged. The 2 to 10-year spread remains at 58.5 basis points. And below 75 basis points, the curve typically inverts about a year later. It is going down, it is narrowing at a significant rate. From about September, we have narrowed quite a bit. And you, if you go back to Christmas, you had 135 basis points spread between 2 and 10. In uh, about t- uh, 20th, 21st of December last year. So you've had a significant narrowing and I wouldn't be surprised to see if in two or three months that goes down to a very low of say 20 or 30 basis points down from 58 and a half, then you are talking about recession being a year away. So let's say maybe not tw- late 2018 but early 2019 uh, is what The bond market is telling me right now. What is the high-yield bond market telling you? The high-yield bond market shows me that it has stabilized. We had the spread increase in late October, early November. We went up up from about 370 basis points close to 400 basis points. There was a lot of worry. And my reaction then was, uh, this is not yet time to worry or to panic about the high-yield bond market. The bubble will indeed get bigger. You can play the bubble for a longer period of time. And we have then since stabilized and we have gone back to 370. And the reason for that is the high yield market, I believe, also looks at the 2 to 10 spread on the treasuries and says that recession is not imminent. Defaults are not going to surge right away. So we have some time to enjoy the high returns from high yield. Thank you very much for being
0: with us. It was a pleasure. You're really very welcome. You. Hey, Thank just, you for well, having you know, me. Just, just quickly, do you, do you think there's going to be really any big change in the tax overhaul bill between the reconciliation Senate House?
2: I don't believe there is going to be much of a change, Pim. I think the Republicans are very happy at the Senate victory they had early Saturday morning. And I think this is going to be a significant legislative victory and the only legislative victory in the first year of the presidential administration is. So I think the House, led by Speaker Paul Ryan, is going to essentially sign off and make sure anything gets approved. So I think it's going to happen.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Kamal Shri Kumar. He is the president and founder of Shri Kumar Global Strategies. He is also a Bloomberg Prophet, and he is based in Santa Monica. And you can follow him on Twitter at Shri K Global. Well, the pharmacy chain CVS Health, we know, has agreed to buy the health insurer Aetna, price tag about $69 billion in cash and stock. It will retain its current management. This will bring together one of the largest providers of pharmacy services with the number three U.S. health insurer. Here to tell, help us understand this deal more is Tara LaChapelle, our deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. You can follow Tara on Twitter at Tara L A C H. And also with us, Michael Ray, founder. Founder, Chief Executive, RX Saving Solutions, based in Overland Park, Kansas. Michael, I just want to begin with you. Does this deal give the combined entity more power over hospitals and drug makers?
4: Absolutely. I mean, the the bargaining power of of this company uh, is going to be tremendous. When you look at uh, the setup of the new arrangement, you know, CVS uh, goes from owning providers to owning the PBM to the pharmacy and now the payer. Uh, so it's a, a tremendous bargaining chip for them.
1: Tara, a lot of people are talking about this as though it's a done deal. It makes a lot of sense with respect to competing against Amazon.com you think perhaps it's going to take a really long time and maybe that's not the worst thing. Can you explain Absolutely. why? Absolutely,
5: And the companies are definitely anticipating this. If you look at their press release this morning, they really played up the consumer aspect that this is going to be great for consumers, great for patients and people that have Aetna insurance. insurance. Um, so they're anticipating a long fight, I think, with the government over this. I mean, this is the second... Uh, extremely large vertical merger we're seeing this year. Um, AT&T, Time Warner, of course, is now um, in a lawsuit against the DOJ um, trying to get their own deal through. And it's very similar, even though they're different industries, it's similar in the respect that they are expanding into a different line of business and they're going to consolidate a lot of power. But I don't think that this regulatory process is necessarily a bad thing because CVS needs some time to figure out how they're going to get their finances in order to pay for this.
1: Right. So before we get into the financing, Michael, I just want to get your take on something Tara said which is the, the companies are painting this as a consumer positive affair do you agree that necessarily it is
4: uh, that's to be determined I mean I think that the opportunity for them to put tremendous efficiency measures in place and save the system a tremendous amount of money is there uh, that said uh, these are public companies trying to maximize profit and this type of arrangement also provides them an opportunity to extract enormous profit. So uh, I, I think that, you know, the talking points and the action will be something that will be really uh, important to follow over time.
0: Well, Michael, in that, in that same context, if the combination goes through and they have more power over hospitals and drug makers, where are they going to get the savings from themselves in terms of their own efficiencies or more likely, perhaps from the very hospitals and the very drug makers, which now really don't have—I uh, mean, it's just one big entity. I mean, they're not going to have a competitor to play them off against. Or am I wrong?
4: Right. I think that that's what you'll see is you'll see just a, a more powerful, uh, a more powerful entity from a bargaining standpoint. You got to play ball with them. Um, so if you're if you're a hospital or if you're uh, a drug uh, drug maker, um, you know. You can't you can't neglect them or, or stiff arm them. They're so big that you have to you have to try to do something. so that's that's where they could extract you know deeper discounts. Um, also a place where they've got kind of a captive audience where they own the whole paradigm uh, from point of prescribing to to point of uh, fulfilling a, a prescription and everything in between. Uh, that, that's where it could be very costly for the consumer and the and the companies at the end of the day.
1: Tara. Let's get back, uh, since we're talking about how expensive it could be potentially for uh, consumers, or just at least the hospitals uh, might end up getting stiffed a little bit. Um, Let's talk about paying for this deal. You said that it might be challenging. Why?
5: So CVS is about a a $76 billion company, I think, at least before today's drop on the deal news. Um, So they didn't really have that much cash to be paying for this deal. And their offer for Aetna, I believe $47 billion of it is in cash. And a majority of that, most of that is going to be through new debt that they're taking on. So at the end of the day, they're going to have almost quadruple the amount of debt that they have in combined EBITDA profits from these two businesses. So it's going to be very burdensome on their balance sheet. And CVS has been a great deal maker. They bought Caremark about a decade ago, and that was another out-of-the-box deal that people didn't really completely buy into when it was announced. So this could be another case where they prove us wrong. But I mean, the numbers involved in here are just jarring, and I'm really interested to see how they're going to make it work. The math is very uh, tricky here, and, and they haven't really explained that part of it yet.
0: Michael, as uh, the founder and the chief executive of Rx uh, Savings Solutions, uh, maybe just tell us how your company would respond to this situation and how that would affect your business.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we just completed an $18 million fundraise last week. I think that the, the, uh, the focus on, you know, businesses like ours to add transparency continues to grow. Um, it also gives, uh, you know, the the employers that we sell to, uh, another kind of viewpoint of someone that's that's working on their behalf. So I think that anytime there's this uh, combination of power, there's a question of, you know, okay, the efficiency could save me money, but is that what they'll really do? And and I think that what we see it as is a tremendous opportunity uh, to work with the market to to try to Make sure people know what their choices are from a therapeutic standpoint and then how they can save money and where they shop and buy. That is what that pure market is what will really drive change and savings in prescription drugs. That that has to happen, in my opinion, whether it's us or the next guy.
1: Tara, back just. Real quick, why can't they just incur a lot of debt? Everybody else is doing it.
5: (laughs) Right. I mean, I guess that's what they can point to. Everyone's doing that. But I I mean, I think we're getting to a point where we need to question is, are are these decisions healthy? Are these mergers going to create value? If this deal is going to make them that much more profitable and they can pay this down quickly, fine. But I think by looking at CVS bond prices today, I mean people are a little bit um, bothered by it and want to see more language out of the company about how this is going to work out. I mean, it Everyone seems to think the strategic rationale makes sense, that they're buying into it. But the numbers need to work. So I'm still a little bit dubious. The numbers need to work. That's a new
1: one. Tara LeChapelle, thank you so much for joining us. Tara LeChapelle, deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Also, uh, Michael Reed, thank you so much for joining us. He is founder and chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions, which is based in Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, definitely interesting to see whether this deal goes through. And if it doesn't, what Amazon.com will do to this entire industry.
0: Now we turn our attention to the future of finance, the future of technology, Wall Street, who will be the titan of Wall Street in 10 years, how good can artificial intelligence get? We've got a two-week series on the future of investing by Bloomberg News Reporters. Today's feature looks at how long until BlackRock and Vanguard reach $10 trillion in assets. Here to help us answer that question is Rachel Evans, our corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg Rachel, thank you very much for being here. So uh, how long, how long does it take for this duopoly to uh, end up with $10 trillion of assets under management?
3: And that's $10 trillion apiece, remember. So we're looking at $20 trillion overall. So at the moment, we've got BlackRock, which has $6 trillion, uh, of assets under management. They're on path to, to get to $10 trillion by about 2025. Vanguard, while smaller at the moment, could actually get there quicker. They're on $4.7 trillion at the moment. They could be there by 2023 if their current growth rates are maintained.
0: Why, why the discrepancy, do you believe?
3: I think it has to do with kind of how they're uh, they're currently positioned. So BlackRock already has 1.6 trillion under management within exchange traded funds. Uh, Vanguard is a little bit smaller. They were a little late to the party when it came to exchange traded funds uh, coming out after uh, BlackRock's BGI. Um, So when we see kind of the the growth going forward, I think Vanguard is going to continue on that uh, trajectory. Their growth rate has just been faster in the last few years.
1: Rachel, uh, before we get into exactly the assumptions that you made in coming up with this projection, I want to just zoom out and talk about the implications of two asset managers overseeing $20 trillion of assets. I mean, on one hand, this seems like it could be problematic. On the other, a lot of this money is going to passive strategies with the indexes being crafted by other
3: firms. Do people talk about this as a potential sort of structural risk? So there's two areas that, that people tend to discuss uh, when when worrying about kind of the impact uh, of these uh, you know titans uh, for asset management. The first is kind of on market efficiency. Um, the argument there goes, you know, if you have so much money in passive strategies, does that warp the way in which uh, price discovery happens within the market? Now the evidence on this is still very nascent. I mean, if you think about the proportion of passive uh, as part of the overall market, when you look at uh, active, uh, sorry, when you look at kind of equity funds in the US, about 37% is um, passively managed at the moment. But that drops to about 15% if you look globally, and at all uh, different asset classes. So we're still a relatively small part of the market as, as passive goes. Uh, so it's hard to kind of draw any conclusions there. However, when you start looking at the, the corporate governance implications, I think that's a little bit clearer at the moment. Uh, Jack Bogle himself, the founder of Vanguard, actually called uh, Vanguard, BlackRock and State Street an oligopoly uh, last week. And, and he was referring really to the size of stake that these uh, three asset managers, particularly BlackRock and Vanguard, hold within America's largest companies.
0: Are there to be uh, uh, reconciled some problems for small and mid-cap companies that can't get into an index that are then not part of this wave of ETF love that we seem to have? Because we've got more exchange-traded funds than we have stocks at the moment.
3: Right. So the growth in indexing has been incredible. Like the, the number of indexes has really proliferated. And a lot of that has been driven by exchange traded funds, which typically track an, an index. Um, so, yeah, for, for the smaller and, and mid-cap companies out there that maybe don't qualify for an index because they're too small or they're not liquid enough, um, that can be a real issue. And actually, we've seen some people suggest that that's one of the reasons we're perhaps seeing fewer uh, initial public offerings at the moment. So, Rachel, let's get
1: back to the assumptions that you made in order to sort of project out the $20 trillion number for both
3: BlackRock and Vanguard. What is that based on? So this looks at the annual growth rate in assets of those firms and then averages it over five years. So the, the methodology behind it is relatively simplistic, but what it does is it tries to give you a sense of kind of how, based on our immediate past, the growth that we've been seeing in the, the recent uh, recent past, how that is going to translate when we look into the future. And if you look at kind of the, the components of, of where a lot of that growth has been coming from. It really has been from this passive side. It's been from exchange-traded funds. It's been from passive index funds, uh, really helping to boost assets of BlackRock and Vanguard.
0: Is there a possibility that this will kind of be a dog chasing its own tail because you get people who say, all right, indexing makes sense. It's low cost. Let's get rid of as many people as possible. And then, of course, that just builds on it on itself, and it really has nothing to do with the value of the underlying Companies in the index.
3: So that's definitely one of the critiques of passive investing. This sense that because everybody kind of you know, piles into uh, you know a relatively small number of index funds, that, that kind of feeds on itself, and you have a certain level of momentum that kind of comes from from people putting their capital into it. Yeah. Uh, the question really have really kind of, uh, sort of stems from what, what happens when that reverses. You know, if you start to see people pulling money out of these funds, how then do they behave? And are there enough active managers in the markets give you decent price discovery? Well, we will be counting on your reporting to answer
1: those questions. Rachel Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Rachel Evans is a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. And uh, how long BlackRock and Vanguard will take to reach $10 trillion in assets This is going to be a series that will be rolled out over uh, the uh, months to come. Let's talk taxes right now. Uh, Jeremy Swan joins us. He is managing principal uh, for financial sponsors and financial services industry for Cone Resnick in New York City. He just pulled his head out of the hundreds of pages of the uh, tax plan that the Senate Republicans passed early on Saturday, including some of the handwritten notes. He's a little bit cross-eyed, but he is here nonetheless. Uh, Jeremy, what does this bill mean for your clients? We're talking about uh, the private equity firms and others like them that you cater to?
6: Sure. So if you look at the M&A markets, you look at the private equity markets, you look at the firms and how they're going to be impacted, there are really a handful of key areas within the tax policies or tax bills that are out there. And you look at interest deductibility. That can certainly put a damper on the ability to leverage up the businesses that are acquiring. You can look at carried interest and extending the applicability of that loophole, so to speak, for Three years, um, you know, it, in terms of the broader markets, it's going to be a challenge for the private equity firms to continue as usual, uh, you know, given the challenges of the M and A market already.
1: So I have a question because that was my assumption, but then I looked at KKR shares, Blackstone shares. Apollo. They're all up.
6: Absolutely. So when you look at the broader financial services businesses, so KKR, Apollo, Blackstone, they're really you know more than just private equity. If you look at the pure play private equity firms, they make their money investing in businesses and with valuations where they are today, the only way you can get the returns is be able to have access to the, to the debt markets, be able to provide debt to these businesses to get to that purchase price. The pure play is going to have a challenge. The broader firms, like you mentioned, uh, there's there's more to it and in terms of the benefits that they're going to get from the overall rate reduction. You look at what could happen with you know cash that's sitting overseas. There are a lot of different aspects to it. Well,
0: Jeremy, when you get a call from uh, a client or even a potential client and they ask you, do I need to change the way I do business because of this
6: uh, overhaul? Do you just say, well, we don't know yet. Well, part of the problem is we don't know yet. When you look at the differences between the House and the Senate bills, you know, even if you're just looking at interest deductibility, you know, in the House bill you have thirty percent of EBITDA, in the Senate bill you have thirty percent of EBIT. The depreciation and amortization can be a significant number, and when you you're, you still don't know what the overall impact is going to be because you know now we have. Uh, the president coming out over the weekend saying, "Well, you know, twenty percent is not necessarily where I'm going to draw the line. This end maybe twenty two percent. You know, what's that impact going to have in terms of the impact on the portfolio companies of these private equity firms? When you look at the after tax return that the private equity firms would expect to see, you know, these changes could have a significant negative impact on the pure play private equity firms. At the end of the day, so when the clients are asking me, you know, does this change the way we need to look at? It? The answer is possibly." We need to wait. You know, Hopefully, it looks like we're not going to have an answer before Christmas, but it may change the way they need to structure deals. Uh, it, may, it may have a, a significant impact in terms of how they finance a lot of these deals.
1: Just to, to be clear, to sort of drill into the specifics of the tax plan, uh, the provision at question here is really the one of how to determine how much companies can deduct Uh, from their taxes with respect to their interest payments on their debt. So in other words, private equity firms usually acquire companies by levering them up, doing leverage buyouts, uh, and uh, they Put a lot of debt on these companies, and under cur- current tax policies, those companies uh, don't have to pay that many taxes because they can deduct the interest payments that they make on their debt from their taxes. Under the Senate proposal, uh, they would have they would only be allowed to deduct a much smaller proportion of that interest right. from their taxes. Is that correct?
6: That's correct. Okay. Yeah, and it's and it, part of it is obviously you know when you look at the private equity market, you look at how they finance deals, you know debt can tend to be a significant portion of it. You look at the broader M&A markets, so if you look at the middle market over the past year, you know, we're at higher debt to EBITDA levels than you know, going back to 2006. We're at almost six times on every deal. And when you look at, so that that's obviously going to have an impact on the private equity deals. But when you look at the broader M&A market, you know, debt is an instrument to finance a lot of these deals, private equity or not. And if you're looking at the changes to how that interest expense can be deducted from a tax perspective, that's going to impact the bottom line of a lot of businesses, not just the private equity-backed ones.
0: Well, one of the other businesses that may be affected is the housing industry because I believe that uh, Senator Susan uh, Collins of Maine is on board with the overhaul bill because of concessions that would continue to allow uh, taxpayers to write off Uh, A ten thousand dollar limit of uh, property taxes, so that is part of that compromise that you were just describing.
6: Yeah, there. This has been a, or these have been at least the two bills we've seen. It's compromised left and right, and I think where we've ended up is you look at the impact of just retaining the corporate AMT and tell people you know, what that's about how that works so if you look at if you look at the the tax bill and you look at just the federal tax plan in in it itself you have your you calculate your, your tax rate you look at the deductions you come out to your you know call it the blended tax rate or the effective tax rate that you're going to get with and then that you have to look at that in the parallel system the amt so with a new amt we're at it's they're saying 20 percent, but they're reducing the corporate tax rate to 20%, and some of the deductions or credits that you typically would be able to apply, you know, it, it would, let's look at the research and development tax credit. That's the one that everyone has picked up on. So you can't apply that against the AMT. So you have these businesses, and this has been, and the research and development tax credit is there to spur innovation in these businesses. Whether you are, you know, a clothing designer, whether you're a manufacturer, you're incentivized to be innovative through the R&D tax credit. Now with the AMT at the same tax rate as the corporate tax rate, the R&D tax credit is virtually useless the way it's the way the tax bill is currently structured.
1: Jeremy, real quick, when you tell your clients the news that they may have a really hard time under this or a much harder time, do they immediately ask you for the names of lobbyists they can call to uh, go and make it all go away?
6: Unfortunately not. Okay. <laughs> Right yeah yeah really
0: you you, you summed <laughs> it up well. Thank you. Jeremy Swan is managing principal financial sponsors and financial services industry for a uh, cone Resnick. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P l podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.